good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 live. And at the end of the day, we archive our show so you can bring the show up anytime you want and play it on your MP3s. This morning, I have two guests. Uh, my first guest is Taylor Molly. He is a poet, an author, a teacher, and we're going to be discussing his new book, What Teachers Make. Uh, we'll be talking to Taylor in the first half hour of the show, and my second guest is Ross Goldstein. Uh, Ross Goldstein is the author of Chain Reaction. Chain Reaction, uh, he has a Ph.D. from Harvard, lives in California with his wife and two sons, and uh, his book is about uh, bicycling, the cutthroat world of bicycling. But first, Taylor Molly. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Catherine, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, your book, and I guess it starts out this way, your book and your famous poem apparently was written in response to some snarky lawyer's comment at an upscale cocktail party about the teaching profession. So um, what happened? Well, it is, uh, of course, I always say that a poet is under no particular obligation to tell the truth. What is uh, a poetic license, you know, is a... Is a permission to lie in the service of better art. So, uh, but, um, but the story behind what teachers make, both the poem and the book, uh, is true. I was at a New Year's Eve party in 1998, and I got involved in a conversation with a charming uh, lawyer who, uh, who was trying to belittle the entire teaching profession by suggesting that no one who was stupid enough to take a job as a teacher these days, knowing in advance how poorly teachers are compensated and respected, should really be allowed to be a teacher. You know, anyone who wants to be a teacher must be so stupid they shouldn't be allowed to be one. And, uh, he, and he turned to me, and I'm sure he didn't say it in these words. That's probably the poet taking over. But in the poem I say, he said, come on, Taylor, be honest. What do you make? And... Uh, I certainly wasn't witty enough to come up with the poem, What Teachers Make, uh, in that moment. Um, well, maybe not I, in that I, moment, Taylor, but obviously when he said that and turned to you and said, What do teachers make? It obviously touched off something emotionally in you that perhaps you, know, you, you couldn't respond in this very poetic, academic way. But what were you feeling? What did it do when he said that? What did, how did you feel? Well, I thought, how dare you? How, you know, how dare you, uh, how dare you think that I went into this for the money? Um, and I had just, teaching was my, was my calling and my life, and uh, I absolutely loved what I did. And I just was livid to hear it be um, belittled using his uh, criteria. So I went home, and the next day and the next week, I, I wrote the, this <clears throat> this response came out of me as a poem. I, you know, I was already a performance poet, so that was my chosen medium. And the, the poem, What Teachers Make, is the, the comeback that I wish I had been smart enough to say. And one of the definitions of what a poem is, um, is what often was thought but never so well expressed. So when I put that poem up on my website, when it got put up on YouTube and got millions of views, uh, I, I think the poem is putting into words what many people have felt. Do we want you to read the poem this morning? Do you want to share that it's with us? It's a full three minutes long. I could give you the, uh, I'll give you the uh, three, minutes, 
three minutes is not that long at a poetry slam, but on on uh, on radio, three minutes of poetry can be daunting. Um, I'll give you I'll give you a shortened version of it. What teachers make, or objection overruled, or if things don't work out, you can always go to law school. He says the problem with teachers is what's a kid going to learn from someone who decided that his best option in life was to become a teacher. He reminds the other dinner guests that it's true what they say about teachers, those who can do and those who can't teach. I decide to bite my tongue instead of his and resist the urge to remind the other dinner guests that it's also true what they say about lawyers because we're eating after all and this is polite conversation. I mean, you're a teacher, Taylor. Come on, be honest. What do you make? And I wish he hadn't done that. Ask to me to be honest, because you see, I have a policy about honesty and butt-kicking, which is, if you ask for it, then I have to let you have it. You want to know what I make? I make kids work harder than they ever thought they could. I can make a C-plus feel like a Congressional Medal of Honor and an A-minus feel like a slap in the face. I make kids wonder. I make them question, I make them criticize, I make them write, 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 and then I make them read over and over and over again until they will never, uh, no, I'm sorry, I make them write, 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 and then I make them read, I make them spell the words definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful, over and over again until they will never misspell either one of those words again. Here, you want to know what teachers make? I make kids understand that if you have this in your head, then you follow this in your heart. And if ever anyone ever tries to judge you based on what you make, you give them this right here. Here, let me break it down for you so you know what I say is true. Teachers, teachers make a difference. Now, what about you? I'm glad the lawyer asked you that question. And now I understand why you had 5 million hits or 5 million views on YouTube with that poem. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's uh, that, a shortened uh, version of it. Go to yeah, go, go search for it on YouTube. You can see the full version. It says, I mean, that, yeah, listeners, if you want to hear the whole thing, then go on YouTube and, and, and listen to it. But it's, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's true. And, of course, you're so right about lawyers. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, lawyers are the ones, if you can't do anything else now, I think it's sort of evolved into people saying, well, then you can always go to law school. We have a... a uh, what is it? Uh, we have a glut of lawyers, I guess, right? But let's get back. Has yeah, the saying been around? Okay, so if, yeah. Has the saying been around? If you if you can't do this, then go to law school. Is it? A, has it been around? Because I mean, I thought I came up with that in 1998. Uh, um, uh, never mind. <laughs> I'm well, sure you may I stole great you may, Taylor, you may have been the one to come up with it. You're talking about 1998. But in my family, and I'll, I'll speak for myself and my friends, uh, especially for women, uh, you know, when I was in college, it was either a social worker <laughs> or a lawyer. And then it sort of evolved as, if, you know, you, for my kids, it was kind of like, well, if you're not sure what you're going to want to do, then be a lawyer because you can always, you can use a law degree in any profession if you go into business, whatever you go into. So that was, so yeah. What, I it's, you, 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 had a, you had a lucky childhood. It's, I think it's lucky if you grow up in a childhood where the default occupation is law school, is good to go to law school. It's, it just sort of prepares you for the most number of things in the future. But it also sets you down on a path that's a path of, of that is often not very rewarding. Yeah, and I, and I actually I have a couple nieces who did that and who don't want to continue with the law. So, But I want to talk about teachers because you said, obviously, I mean, the reason, what, the reason that, that, that 
men and women, young men and women, go into teaching is is what? I mean, is it the passion? Is it something that they realize they have a creative ability? In? Because it's a very, it can be, it should be, I think, a very creative profession. Um, it so, can be, it should be, and, and unfortunately a lot of states don't, don't, don't sort of respect the, uh, the creative aspect of, of the teaching profession. And I sort of understand that. We need to start a national conversation about what, uh, what, what the qualities that make a great teacher. And you know what? They can't always be measured, and that's sort of what's wrong with the debate. But don't, let's, I'm not, I shouldn't be the first one to get us around to the, the politics of education, because I'm always reminding people that I'm first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a poet about the teaching profession. So let's uh, talk about that. People go into it because they can change the world, and because you have to love kids, and you, and, uh, you, you, you can literally see the effect you are having on the future. You know, you said you, you want, but you said you don't want to get into the politics. I think we kind of have to in a certain way, don't we? Um, because the whole, I mean, the whole idea, I mean, you want to shy away from the politics of teaching and who gets the best teachers and, and why and, and those kinds of issues. Because, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I think that's really important. I think there's a whole political agenda there. We we say that our, our um, children are the most important things to us, and yet we... Don't make it it's comfortable for people to get into teaching. Uh, to, you know, right. these are the, the you know the people who are going to spend the eighteen years with our children more more time with our children than we do. Right. Yeah, I mentioned that in the in the book. Yeah. I, I'm I'm happy to get into the politics. Just always know you're talking to a poet. You're giving you're getting a poet's idea about what what's wrong with the, with the political debate. That's fine. But, That's good. Uh, good. Yeah, poets aren't heard more. You know, there's so many things, there, there, there's so many slow um, ideas that I have for education that would, that just, it, I don't know that a politician could back them. Because um, they're not, politicians need, uh, need measurable, um, measurable measures. Don't tell anybody that I just said measure, used measure as a <laughs> verb and a noun in the same sentence. They You're a poet, propose... you can do that, you have poetic, poetic license. Right, I'm a yeah. poet. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right, um, so they need men, we know. They need to have, like, you have to, the, the, the kids have to like do how well. do you measure joy well on their of SAT learning? Scores. Yeah. Joy, simple joy of learning. Is, I mean, kids come to school and they are just ready, ready made to, to learn, and they love it. And you should be, you should be uh, putting a harness on curiosity or... Lighting a fire under the harness of curiosity to mix metaphors. You know, how do you, you don't, you can't measure the, uh, um, curiosity. You can, you can just do everything you can to encourage it. And that's just not the kind of, um, law that, that certain elements of the American public these days are gonna, uh, you know, let, let fly. It's all but, about your resume. By the time you get into fifth grade, you have to be thinking about what, courses you're going to take, and are they going to be the AP courses by the time you get to high school? You have you to take... Yeah, but... You don't. In fact, it's... I've not, you don't even have to major... Your major in college shouldn't be the first step down your career. You major in things that you love studying, because you know what? You're going to be graduating soon. First of all, you know, what do they say? 50% of the jobs that exist, of the big industries that exist now, didn't even exist 10 years ago. So if you're going to be preparing kids for the future, 
you, don't, you shouldn't be teaching them the, the, the careers they're going to be have, having. You should teach them the skills they're going to need, flexibility and uh, able to uh, work on things that they don't particularly um, like just because, all right, this is the job I've taken on, this I need to do. There's going to be some new kind of Internet viral, you know, virtual world that's going to open up and, and uh, skills are going to be... They're, Jobs are going to be created in the next couple of years that we don't even know what they're going to look like. So it's better to teach curiosity and flexibility and hard work. And when you're in college, just major in something you love because you've got four years where all you have to do is study and get smarter and read books, and that's going to disappear. And so just study something you love. And it uh, yeah, you don't I think- need to major in what you're going to no, I, be, I think you have to say that over and over because that's right. so important. I don't think that parents and my experience with parents in schools and the school system is they don't understand that. You need to learn. You need to be in a, an atmosphere that, that nurtures your creativity and your ability to get along with people and connectedness and all of those things. And then you, as you say, you use all of those, you know, as you develop as a person and evolve, that can be used in any profession, whether you become a teacher, a doctor, or a business person. Um, and but the problem is, and I don't know if this has been your experience, Taylor, but I think the parents are doing exactly the opposite in terms of sabotaging kids doing. If if the kid you mentioned, if the, you have to learn to make mistakes, to not do well, and to see how that feels, and to be able to rectify it or to do what you need to do, um, you know, in terms of um, working with another teacher or working with other students, parents come in and they try to they they and I mention this on the show all the time, helicopter parents, they're always coming in there trying to make things better, trying to, uh, you know, talk to the teacher about what he or she is doing wrong. And if that doesn't work out, they actually take the kid and, you know, and move him into a different classroom. It's the antithesis of what you're saying. At least that's what I see. Maybe you see another side of it as the poet. Well, I, I, not as a poet, but in my experiences as a teacher, there were uh, helicopter parents. But I taught at a private school, so I, I was given a whole lot more freedom to do what I wanted. And, uh, but the, the, uh, the, the problem that I had with parents was the uh, two, both, and I was teaching in New York City, so the, when, the, when the parents had high-powered careers, like in the fashion industry, they would be in Italy for, for uh, half the year and then come home. You know, and the kid was being raised by nannies. And uh, so when I wanted to call home and say, hey, you got to help David uh, study for this quiz because he's having trouble with it, you know, the housekeeper would say, oh, they're in Italy. I can leave a message and I'll try to call you back the next time they call in. This was, you know, this was 10 years ago. It's not quite as easy to reach somebody. Uh, not everybody had a cell phone back then. So it's the absentee parent. But, I, I, you know, they're both, they're both good to know as a teacher. Um, but, yeah, teachers need to be able to say to parents, hey, listen, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. And, uh, and failure is uh, providing a safe place to fail is part of that plan. Yeah, but I can imagine parents are not very, uh, not very patient with that type of plan. Yeah, I mean, it's a difference. I mean, as you mentioned in the book and you talk about, I mean, some of these talking points, um, it depends on the schools, too. I mean, depend the, the type, you know, like you, you, you asked the question, where do the best teachers end up? Where do they end up? They end up where they have the lightest teaching load and get the, and get the most money, which is in the areas that, because of the way we fund public schools, uh, it, it relies uh, 
far too heavily on local property taxes. So the the you know the rich suburban schools are the ones that can uh, can can pay the most, and uh, there's no financial incentive for the best, most experienced teachers to end up in the classrooms that need them most. And and you know sometimes it's not just experience in the inner city. You could teach for 30 years in some um, nice, affluent suburban enclave, and you could have a great experience with a certain, uh, certain type of kid, but then you go to the inner city, you, 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 your 30 years of experience is not going to guarantee that you could last a week. Uh-huh. And so it might be that there's a young kid fresh out of college, dare I say fresh out of Teach for America, that... Um, that is going to be better, has better experience to reach the kids. And there needs to be a financial, we, we shouldn't get started talking about Teach for America unless you want to, unless you want to go there as well. But um, there needs to be the financial incentives for the, the, the best teachers to end up in the classrooms that, that need the most. And those are just the uh, perennially abandoned uh, classrooms. And they often end up being filled with uh, you know, interns and teaching fellows who, great as these programs are, have not quite prepared teachers for what they need to face in these most difficult classrooms. Well, as I understand it, you're trying to create a thousand new teachers. This is a whole project that you're involved in, and maybe this is the time to ask you about it because your new teachers project is 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 what it's called the new teachers project uh, it was what? originally and then i've realized that one of my heroes michelle ree the former uh, dc chancellor of public schools she founded a project a couple of years before i did called the new teacher project which does the same thing it tries to find and educate and uh, um, get into the classroom smart dedicated college graduates and people from other professions who want uh, alternative means of certification so i changed my name casually to the quest for one thousand teachers and i started doing it Catherine, when twelve years ago i i quit my i put my day job on hold as a regular middle school teacher to see whether i could make a living travel traveling the world as a poet and speaker and writing teacher and itinerant creative writing uh, consultant. No, I would never call myself a consultant. <laughs> and that's, um, um, that's worked out. And, and about uh, uh, largely due to the poem, What Teachers Make, people used to come up to me and say, hey, you know what, because of you, because of the passion with which you talk about the teaching profession in some of your poems, I've decided to become a teacher. And so I started to keep track, and then I gave myself a goal, and I said, I will convince through poetry perseverance or persuasion 1,000 people to become teachers and then I tied it to the publication of what teachers make about two years ago uh, and then I also tied it to the cutting of my ponytail which had been growing out for since since 2006 and I'm happy to say I reached it on April 7th um, we I, I approved live on stage at the Bowery Poetry Club here in New York City we uh, I approved the 1,000th teacher onto my online form. Uh, we had a little Skype session with her. She's a teacher, the youngest of 14 kids. She lives in Tennessee. She's only one who went to college, saw my work, and decided to become a, a teacher. And I cut off 12 inches of my hair and donated it to the American Cancer Society. So I'm done with the new teacher project. And one of the best things about it is that now when somebody says, because of you, I decided to become a teacher, I can say, 
thank you, God bless you, instead of saying, really, have you heard about my list? Could, could you in any way claim that I'm partly responsible? Good. Could you go to this? Here's the website. Go here. Sign up. I can just be happy for people, and we can talk about teaching without trying to make them count on some kind of list. Taylor, did you, when you, I mean, this, this teacher who was with that 1,000 teachers, I was a, a young woman from Tennessee, you said, what about uh, the men versus women? Because teaching is one of those, and this is, I guess, the new word they use, the pink professions, social work is too, um, uh, and teaching is as well. I mean, women go into it because they don't make, a, because one can't make a lot of money, whatever a lot of money is, uh, and so you don't get a lot of young men involved in teaching. Did you find that when you got your 1,000 teachers? Yes. Yeah, I haven't gone through and figured out the the exact ratio, but that's a that I should or should have somebody else do it. <laughs> but it's it's at, it's probably at least um, four to one, at, at least on my list. Well, maybe, maybe it's just good. that women. How about this? Maybe women just make better teachers. <laughs> that's true too. There's also an insidi- a more insidious theory, and that is that uh, after the Second World War women were encouraged to go into teaching and once women were once the teaching profession, profession was predominantly women wages could be depressed and held back and uh i guess i never heard the pink slip profession but there is in in uh academia they talk about the the feminization of teaching and it it you they, maybe teachers get pushed around because it's so uh, so much of a pink slip Profession. There are yeah, arguments well, again, uh, you know, for and against that, but it's so much more insidious. Let's because you know the teamsters. The teamsters don't get pushed around. <laughs> the you know, I, I garbage men make more money than te- than public school teachers do. And gar- you know, when garbage men go on strike, the stuff piles up on the street and it smells and people say, for God's sake, these people are important. Give them what they need. When teachers go on strike, we're vilified. You know? And teachers That's a good example. Are, are to... In, uh, one of my sons once said to me, it's kind of a slightly different example than you're giving, but it kind of fits into this, I think. I mean, he was talking about the importance of jobs, but it was lawyers versus garbage men, and it was, you know, if garbage men go on strike, the whole, all of us are affected immediately. If lawyers goes on, if lawyers goes on, lawyers go on strike, who cares? I mean... <laughs> But anyway, it's, it's like if, if humans suddenly became extinct, the world would flourish in the next three years. And if mosquitoes today ex- suddenly went extinct, the, the rest of the world's population would go extinct in 10 years. You know, we know who's more important to the food chain. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. But, but lawyer, and lawyers don't need to go on strike. There's no, you know, they're they're. they're their seat is closer to the pot of gold. Anybody who sits closer to the pot of gold or helps those people live comfortable lives can somehow demand higher pay. But teachers are holding the, the, you know, the most valuable asset. But it's not a monetized asset. What was the most, what were you, as a teacher, because you taught for how many years? A long time in, in the, what, middle school? Uh, yeah. I taught, no, I, started, I, I taught teaching, I taught composition when I was in graduate school, and that was in 1990, and, uh, and subbed, and then, uh, and then went to become a full-time poet in 2000. So it's really only 10 years. Well, but, those 10 uh, years, then, what course, was the most inspiring teaching. thing, that, not the most inspiring thing that you did for your students, but what was the most inspiring 
uh, um, situations, I don't know how to describe it exactly, that the students did for you. I mean, the, because, it, you know, it, you change the students, but they change you. That's a good question. I mean, the, I have a poem called Like Lily, Like Wilson about a student who in Kansas who's trying to write a poem, uh, write a paper for me arguing against gay adoption, which was a big issue, hot-button issue in, the, in Kansas in the early 90s. And uh, I, I just let her do it. And I said, okay, you know, here's, here, this is probably not answering your question. I'll just tell it quickly. So I just, I didn't want to interfere and say, no, what, what, you know, you can't do that. So I just said, all right, here, remember, these are the stipulations for the kinds of sources you're going to need to cite, and here are the questions you should ask of those sources to make sure they're reliable. And she came back in three days and said, you know what, I, I'd like to change my mind, and I'd like to argue the other way. And um, so that's not really something I did for her, and it's not really something she did for me. She changed her mind because she had gone and educated herself uh, and decided that, you know what, that's actually, this is closer to what I believe. I need to change my, change my topic. So if that's, a, if that's an answer to your question in some, insofar as it's something that she did, it, it, that I really felt like I was making a difference in the world when I was, it vindicated my choice to let her, you know, let her solve this problem. See, I think that's a perfect example. That's a great example. Instead of following your agenda or your political beliefs or what you thought you wanted her to do, that's the way, I mean, isn't that a perfect example of how students learn? I mean, you have well, to go through the process, and she, I, I think that's a, you know, that's exactly... It's a, it's a, it is a perfect example of how students learn, I, and I'm glad you think that I, I answered your question. It, but it leads <laughs> you to believe that all reasonable people, if given enough time, will, should ha- hold the same views. And I'm not sure that's true. I, I, know some, I know some charming people who believe um, very politically opposite have, 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 I'm very liberal, I'm very progressive, but I, and I know some charming, wonderful conservatives who I love. And so I know that people, reasonable people will differ. Um, I, I, I probably would agree with you in theory and probably would have agreed with you more. Now I'm, because I'm very left of center and I'm mm-hmm. having more and more difficulty, um, you know, having, being with Having people. conversations with the right. Well, yeah, and as you get, you know, as one gets older and your time is precious and, you know, I, and so I'm very uh, always uh, concerned about how I spend my time and who I spend my time with and sometimes I don't want to, you know, be talking to people who are far to the right. Um, one of my and sons, say, I'm always going back to my kids, but one of my was dating somebody, he said she's, she was a lawyer actually, and then he said she's a Republican, and then I said, how could you have brought her into the house? <laughs> it was our joke, but <laughs> you just stay away from politics. And, <laughs> yeah, you know. All right, let's stay away from politics. We only have a All few right. minutes left. What do we want to leave our listeners with? Um, why don't I leave you with a poem? All right, great. Um, there was a there was a moment when I was trying to teach math that well, the poem speaks for itself. It's called "Undivided Attention: What All Teachers Want and Few of Us Ever Get." A grand piano, wrapped up in quilted pads by the movers, tied up with canvas straps like classical music's birthday gift to the criminally insane, is gently nudged out an eighth-floor window on 62nd Street. 
It dangles from the neck of the mover's crane, spinning slowly. Chopin shiny black lacquer squares and dirty white crisscross patterns hanging like the second-to-last note of a concerto played on the edge of the seat, the edge of tears, the edge of eight stories up going over. It's a piano getting pushed out of a window and lowered down onto a flatbed truck by a long-necked crane. And I'm trying to teach math in a building across the street. Who can teach when there are such lessons to be learned? All the greatest common factors are delivered by long-necked cranes and flatbed trucks or come through everything, even air, like snow. See, snow falls for the first time every year, and every year my students rush to the window as if snow were more interesting than math, which, of course, it is. So please, let me teach like a Steinway, spinning slowly in April air, so almost falling, so hinderingly dangling from the neck of the mover's crane, so on the edge of losing everything. Let me teach like the new snow falling. Well, that's beautiful. That, that was a, a lovely way to end the show, and I thank you. Taylor Molly. What My pleasure, teachers, Catherine. What teachers make, and you can go to... I can go to your a website. Give us a website quickly so that... Uh, well, you can find it all over Amazon, anywhere you would buy yeah. a book online, but my website is taylormolly.com. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Taylor. Bye-bye. How are Bye-bye. you? Have a great day as well. Yep. We're going to take a, uh, a short break before uh, we talk to my next guest, Ross Goldstein, who's author of Chain Reaction. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about his new book, which is all about uh, the cycling world. Don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. 
You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday morning Eastern Time from 10 to 11. And uh, at the end of the day, we archive the show and you can uh, listen to us on your MP3s. Uh, joining me, my second guest is uh, Ross Goldstein. Uh, he is an author and sports psychologist. We're here to discuss his new book, Chain Reaction. Ross has a Ph.D. from Harvard and lives in California with his wife and two sons. Welcome to the show, Ross. Nice to have you on this morning. Catherine, nice to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, your new novel has been described as a coming-of-age story set against the backdrop of the cutthroat competitive world of professional bicycle racing. So I have to ask you, is this an accurate description of your book? I think it is an accurate description. When I started writing it, I was more focused on the, um, on the cycling bit the cycling piece of it and the world of professional cycling. And as I wrote it, I became more engaged by the human drama of the story. And I think the two themes play against each other pretty well. Well, the theme of competitive, not just com- competitive bicycle racing, but just competitive sports in general really interests me. And I think uh, you as a, uh, a sports psychologist have been involved with that for many years, what, for 15 years um, so let's talk about the psychology of competition amongst all of these sports, because I think in, in lots of ways in the United States, it's gotten out of hand. And I know specifically you talk about doping and bicycling, but it, it, it exists in all sports. But what about this, this competition? Bicycling, we, obviously the book is about bicycling, but just sports in general. Well, I, I, actually I've been involved in competitive sports my whole life, and the book and my point of view is not an indictment of competition. I actually think competition is a, is a positive thing in, in people's lives. Um, what I try and emphasize in the book is that there's, a, there's a, a positive way to engage in competition. And in point of fact, my perspective is that young people need to learn how to compete and how to compete fairly. And that includes winning as well as losing gracefully. In the book... What I, what I try and, um, and bring out is uh, an explanation of why people will cheat and why people will do things like cyclists who will dope and explain that for competitive cyclists or com- people who succeed in competition, the way you do that is by winning and that their perspective gets narrower and narrower and they'll do whatever it takes because winning becomes the only thing that matters. But the, the backdrop of my, my story and my position is that competition isn't a bad thing. It's, it's how you compete and learning how to compete fairly. Yeah. Well, how do we learn how to compete fairly? It seems to me, uh, not, not just having read your book, but uh, just, I mean, you could, if you turn on the news, I think on a day-to-day basis, there, I mean, I think there's all, always a story about competition, whatever sport it's in, and this idea of competing fairly somehow seems to have gone by the by. Uh, doping, taking drugs, cheating, um, somehow, and I agree with you, healthy competition is a very positive thing, I think, for everyone. But how, how do we get, we sort of go down that slip, slippery slope, I think, as a society in terms of all the, you know, competing and, and not doing it in, in the way that you well, just described, in a positive way? Well, there are a couple, there are a couple of themes that I think would, um, that, that need to be, uh, need to be emphasized for fair competition. I think the first one, and probably the most important one, is to not have our self-esteem entirely contingent on success or failure. 
And a subsidiary to that or a, a corollary to that is to enjoy the, the process, the sport itself, and not just just the outcome. If you talk to some of the most successful competitors, what they talk, what they will tell you about is losing themselves in the moment. And you know, sometimes you hear athletes refer to being in a being in a zone in which they time slows down and they they really enjoy the activity itself. The paradox is that as you move up the ladder and you become a professional athlete, you only stay a professional athlete if you're successful. And that's really where the most abuse comes, is is at the professional level. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the professional athletes too often are modeling behavior for amateur and younger athletes, and they think, well, if the successful pros are doing it, if they're the ones who are cheating, using performance-enhancing drugs, then that's what I need to do to to be successful too. So um, I've, for example, I've had I have two boys who are both involved in competitive sports, and what we've tried to focus on in our house has been that winning is great, but loving the sport is more important. And have you been successful at imparting that message to them, to either one of them or to both of them, or do you see well, them I'm, get yeah? Well, I'd like to think that we have. You know, I have um, my older son has recently, um, in the last year, shifted from playing soccer to racing bicycles and has enjoyed success. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's pushing the rock up, uh, up a hill, definitely. You know, he'll, he'll take fifth in a race, and um, I'll say, gee, that's, that's terrific. I'm really proud of you. And his response to me is, will be, yeah, but I could have won. It. And, and um, I see that erosive quality that... Um, that's endemic to, to sports. So we, we fight against it. But um, I think we've laid, laid a good foundation. And the, I, I guess along with the other things that I mentioned earlier, the one way to deal with that is to take that dissatisfaction that he has. And he says, gee, I could have won the race instead of taking fifth and turn it into what are you going to do next time and how will you train harder so, so that that goal of winning the race is within your reach. What we do try to avoid is the tendency to beat oneself up because you didn't perform as well as you might have. There are always in life going to be those kinds of disappointments, and learning to manage it is a life skill. Yeah, I think that's really important and an important point to make. I mean, you can go to any school throughout this country, whether it's a city school, suburban school, small town, and, I mean, all these games that are going on, whether whatever they are, soccer, basketball, football, I mean, you see the parents out there cheering these kids on as if they are at a professional game. And if the kid doesn't win, the disappointment, the grief, the agony, uh, the agony and the ecstasy, it's, it's it, you know, with, you know uh, in middle school, uh, is as if they lost, uh, you know, a, a professional uh, soccer game or football game or whatever it is. Oh, it's it's painful to watch. I like I said, I have two kids who have come up through the soccer leagues, and both of them played um, played soccer at the collegiate level. Um, but watching the recreational and out here in California, they're called the select or the traveling squads. I would watch parents um, really um, hinge their own self esteem. To their kids' performance, and it was uh, it, you know I don't need to tell you how ugly that scene can become. 
One of the things I remember most, though, I, I have to say, um, one of my son's coaches had a rule, and and uh, it was kind of innovative, and I, I, uh, I thought it worked quite well. This coach, he was a, a very strict disciplinarian, and he was as strict with the parents as he was with his players. And he came to uh, the, the first parents' meeting, and he said, here's my rule. If I hear you yelling or cheering for your child and not for the team, I will ask you to leave. And, um, and, he, and he exercised that authority. So if, uh, if you came to the game, you're welcome to cheer for the team. But if you heard you yelling for your kid in particular, you were asked to leave. <laughs> I saw a lot of parents uh, who got evicted from the sidelines before that rule was, uh, was fully understood. And the beauty of it is, um, our kids hear us when we're when we're yelling at them, even if we're yelling only encouragement, and that that reinforces that tendency to perform for mom and dad instead of getting involved in the game. That's a very creative coach, and I've never heard that approach before. But probably one that uh, coaches should learn across the you know in our across the United States in our school system because that's a great way of of as you say coaching the parents as well as the kids. I guess it's a family game. Um, could you comment on this? Because I mean, this is as a obviously as an expert as um, sports psychologist, and um, you know, recently I think it was a couple of days ago there was a piece. On, um, on maybe it was on CNN, and it's a picture of all of these uh, people uh, hiking up Mount Everest, and and you know you talk about the competition and people who are just, you know wanting to get to the top no matter what, even if they're not qualified, even if they get sick, even if they endanger other people. It's, I mean, isn't that? I mean, it seems to me that was kind of like a I don't know if you call it a metaphor, but the way we a metaphor for the way we do approach sports here in the United States and, and competition. Well, it is a metaphor, and I think that um, it's a very rich and deep story because what has happened with the climbing industry is is that, well, it has become an industry, and if you have, four, I think it's $40,000, um, you can purchase a trip up Mount Everest. Now, there are some, you know, the good guys do exercise some discretion about who they will allow to, to take up because the uh, the the... Ill, the ill health of any one climber or any one participant endangers everybody else. But when you when when you dangle forty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars in front of a guide, um, sometimes they don't exercise all that all that discretion. But um, I think the point that that you're getting at, and the point I think is is um, is the, the story illustrates is that we we are living in a culture in which your financial assets can purchase you a lot of experiences that you don't necessarily earn and um, and it becomes quite reckless and, and dangerous. Yeah, and I mean, I watched these. They were, bump, I don't know if you call it bumper to bumper, in a single line climbing out, up Mount Everest. I mean, it, to me, it was just that whole site was just uh, was a phenomenon, but uh, I don't think necessarily a good one. But... Let's get back. Well, there was a, let me just interject. There was a time when you had to um, you had to earn that um, you had to earn that trip with other climbing accomplishments. And now, like as I was mentioning, now there's an industry that will shepherd you or sherpa you. I guess would be the, the correct verb 
uh, will sherpa you up the mountain. And it's a sour, it's a sour effect. Now, that said, the authorities in, in China and Tibet, which are the two primary routes to, to, um, to go up, um, uh, Mount Everest, um, they try and restrict the number, but you're right. And there's a very small window for the actual assault on the, uh, on the peak. So you get a, you know, the, it, with a, an increasing number of people who have the financial assets, to be able to do it in a small window of opportunity, you get that kind of a parade. And I, and for somebody, in the, I lived in Colorado for a long time and was involved with uh, with the climbing with the climbing industry. It, it kind of cheapens the the whole experience. Well, what about other sports as well? I, it, you know, I think it becomes kind of like uh, oh, bragging rights. You know, I climbed Kilimanjaro, for instance. I mean, you go to a cocktail party and you'll hear, you know. Uh, two, at least two people may have climbed Kilimanjaro, or I bicycled across the country, or I walked across the country, or I jogged across the country. Um, is that good for us, or is, or is that taking it too far? Is that people following their passions, or have we gotten too much into this competitive stuff, which leads to you know some of the things that you talk about in your book, especially about bicycling and drugs and doping and, and just going too far with the sport? Well, I think that, that we do live in a competitive culture and, and um, sports has become a vehicle for expression of, of one's own self-esteem and um, accomplishment. So it can be carried too far. Uh, it, one of the places I see it um, that I, I find it a little bit distressing has been the way we've institutionalized coaching and organized play for kids. As I mentioned earlier, um, I, have, I have two boys now. They're, they're young adults. But I watched them go through all the AAU system and the school system and the, um, the, the recreational sports system, and there's very little play that actually happens in those systems now. And as an auxiliary to that, one of the most distressing things was when I saw parents who would use um, their financial assets to buy extra coaching for, for their kids. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you have a child who's really involved and, and really enthusiastic about their sport, and you buy them extra coaching, um, that can be a good thing because you're facilitating a, a desire that they have and making it possible. I thought too many instances where kids were really marginal in their interest, but the parents purchased extra coaching. By purchased, what I mean is they would hire a private coach for basketball or for soccer, and the kid was kind of interested, but not really all that enthusiastic. And it became a little, a little um, family industry to develop their their child into um, into a star or into a, a more successful player in that particular sport when the child didn't really have that much interest. Yeah, and I wonder how well that works in the end anyway. If the kid doesn't have that much of an interest as they get older, they probably bow out, but it can have well, little, it, yeah. it, it doesn't, it, it is not very successful, and I'll tell you actually kind of an amazing story. I, when my son, my oldest son was um, in, oh, I don't know, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, I coached him in basketball, and his school had a, um, a, a policy that every child had to, had to uh, play on a, uh, a sport. And we had a couple of kids on the basketball team who really didn't want to be there. And they made it clear every day in practice that they didn't want to be there. You know, they would act out and misbehave and they would, their minds would wander. And one day I asked my son about one of the, one of the young fellows in one of his, uh, his 
teammates. I said, uh, why, why is Pete here? He said, because his father offered to buy him a new computer if, um, if he stuck with the basketball team. And that occurred to me that my, they were about uh, 11 or 12 years old at the time. I said, so basically he's a professional athlete now because he's getting incented to participate when he actually has no interest whatsoever. And the message there is, for parents, you really need to back off. You really need to um, watch your children, see what they're interested in authentically, reinforce that instead of having them act out what your own fantasies are. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, uh, you're saying that the kid was getting sort of paid with a computer to pa- uh, participate in basketball. Uh, to me, it sounds like bribery, but that also well, might... <laughs> yeah, bribery or professional sports, um, at, the, at that age... It's tough to uh, separate the two out. One of the things in, in um, I guess, in your just getting back to the book, um, in Chain Reaction, and um, if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Ross Goldstein, who is the author of Chain Reaction, which is a book you can buy online, bookstores everywhere. But um, you, you talk about, um, for you, bicycling um, was a life-changing sport, and, and that sounds like that, that's a positive. You know, we've been talking about some of the negatives of competing in, in these sports, but let's talk about some of the positive stuff because you had a real passion. You, you had a passion or have a passion. You've been doing this for, what, 30 years, 40 years, bicycling? So let's talk about bicycling as a passion, as a good thing, as, as something that you embrace, not that your parents did necessarily, but it was something that, that's been really good for you. Well, Catherine, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I would hate for your listeners to come away thinking that sports are evil and right. is bad. Cycling for me was really important because um, I had been a competitive athlete my whole life up until um, my late 20s. Um, I, uh, I competed. I got, to, uh, I got to go to school because of um, sports. Uh, I went to college on a basketball scholarship. And um, I found myself in my 20s looking for something else to do, and I discovered cycling. And then I, I raced for about 15 years on the amateur level, but it became a focus for me. And, um, you, you know, I would, I, 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 would, I would always work out. I always would do something physical um, every day of my life. That, that has been one of the consistent things. But discovering a way to channel that and have a purpose adding another dimension to it. And that transition from being a recreational cyclist who went out for exercise as opposed to uh, competing gave me a focus for my, for my training. And, I, and, and for me, that was very important. And, of course, the beauty of cycling is you can do it your whole life. So as my knees went bad and my back went bad, I was able to continue cycling, and now I'm, I have to admit I'm 65 years old, and I still ride nearly 200 miles a week. Yeah, and that, that, that was my next question, actually, because those sports, I think, like you're talking about cycling, walking, I'm a swimmer, it's the same way. I mean, I used to swim, um, you know, two miles, now I swim a half a mile, but it's, you can, it, those lifetime sports are so good for you, not only physically, but mentally. Let's talk about um, mental well-being, because that's really important. I think especially as one ages, and we have an aging population of baby boomers who need to get out there and do some kinds of sports, uh, you know, overweight, obese, uh, obviously not doing what they need to do in terms of physical exercise. So there are these 
sports, like you say, like bicycling, where you can just do it at your own pace, you know, at whatever fits your abilities at whatever age. Well, the beauty of a, of a physical discipline, it's a, it's a very Zen concept, but the beauty of it is that it is a commitment to an activity that you enjoy and it, it liberates you really from a lot of the stress and the, the um, deleterious effects of the, you know, the tension uh, of daily life. And it's, it is a commitment. And you mentioned something about um, obesity. Of, of course, we're all familiar now, and we should be, that there is an obesity epidemic, and it's particularly um, problematic for young people. The, these percentages of young people who are obese now is it's staggering. I, I, I watched the, uh, the, the HBO documentary like probably a lot of your listeners did, and, and it's staggering. The antidote to that, one of the best antidotes, as well as eating well, is a commitment to a physical activity. So um, with our young people, with our children, it becomes important to instill that in them. And, you know, in competition is part of it, but also the love of the activity. They, if, if they're going to make a lifetime commitment to it, they have to really enjoy the activity. So you mentioned swimming. Swimming is a great is a great exercise. Cycling for me has been a great exercise, and it, it's a it's an anchoring, governing principle in, in my life. I think everybody needs that. And you don't necessarily have to be a great athlete. You just have to have a certain commitment and dedication to the process itself. And I think another thing, one of the positive things, at least culturally, you say you don't have to be a great athlete to do some of these individual sports that are lifetime sports. Now, because we have we have a lot of good equipment that can protect, let's say, your bones if you're as you're getting older. We have helmets. We have good bicycles. We have different kinds of bicycles, different kinds of sports equipment, depending on your skill level and and what you want to do with it. And I think that all adds to the you know the, to the pot that you know anybody can do it because they can do the sport in their own way at their own pace in their own time. Well, the technology has certainly improved yeah. the pleasure of of the activity. You know, I. My uh, um, my son just bought a new bike to race on, and it weighs 15 pounds. And um, you know, you pick it up, it's light, it's light as a feather. But I I don't want to um, communicate that you have to have the very best equipment, because that that um, that that can easily be misunderstood as meaning that you you should only do it if you have the best equipment. Then of course you have to have the financial wherewithal. Um, to to, uh, to to take advantage of that. The truth is, all you really have to do is have the willingness to go out and exercise. Walking uh, it, it is great exercise. What I tried to get at in Chain Reaction, in, in the book that I wrote, was the ways in which this whole um, the, the whole competitive drive can take over a sport and lead people into making decisions that are. Uh, deleterious to them, deleterious to the sport, that they can you know, easily lose their their, um, their sense of who they are and, and why they're doing it. So the thing I would underscore for people who are looking for an activity is love the activity first. Don't worry about all the equipment. Don't worry about all the gear. Don't worry about look, looking right. Don't worry about what the results are. Love the activity first and find your own place in it. So would you say, Ross, it's important for us to just introduce, let's say, our children at a young age to different sports when they're younger in a very 
non-competitive way uh, without all the fancy equipment, as you're saying, necessarily, but as maybe uh, something that you uh, do with your family, ride a bike, uh, you know, on a Sunday afternoon or take a walk or go to the local Y to go swimming or whatever it is, but, um, and, and give the kid a, a, an opportunity to find out what he or she is passionate about. I would, I would, I would endorse the idea that um, you know make it a family activity. But you mentioned something in the preamble to that that I think is really um, is worth underscoring, and it is the idea of variety. One of the things that we are seeing in the world of sports these days in young people um, that is particularly dangerous is the narrowing down and the focusing on on a particular sport at too early an age, so kids become specialists in fencing or cycling or tennis or baseball or whatever the sport is, and um, there, there are two problems with it. One is the psychological problem, that um, that sport becomes, that, that, that one and only sport becomes too important to them and too important to us as parents. And the second one is a, is a physical problem, problem, which is that um, training in, in one sport when you're a youngster, an intensive training, tends to produce overuse syndromes. Yeah, I think um, that yeah, both of those are very important. We have to say goodbye, but I, I'm glad that you left us with that because, I mean, I think that's a, an extremely important point, and I always like to uh, uh, kind of leave on a, a note of how we can, you know, help uh, help our children to, to, as we've been talking about, particularly in sports, to achieve what they want to do. But J- Chain Reaction, that's the title of your book. I mentioned that again, Chain Reaction. Ross Goldstein, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Let's have you on again. Yeah. Great having you. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.